Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Um, when did we start this season? I don't even know. I feel like we started it in October. Did we? We were like recording interviews last summer. Yeah, uh-huh, in like June. Yeah, so I feel like my life has been a little bit of Narnia... Too much? I'm bored. Yeah. I've already moved on. Ready to move on to something else. Ready to move on. But this is the last episode of The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. And as we've mentioned on other episodes, the season didn't really go as I had planned. Yeah. You thought you would just like rip things apart? Yeah. Like we do? Yeah. It was really different from anything else we've tackled as far as Adventures in Odyssey or Frank Peretti books or what, mm-hmm. McGee and Me. You know, it, it was just a totally different entity. Almost as though it wasn't created by evangelicals in the 80s or 90s. Oh, and yet they love it. What, what's funny is, you know, in our Patreon group, we actually do get to talk with, with people a little bit more. And a lot of people have taken umbrage with us saying that the Chronicles of Narnia was considered safe for evangelical kids. Like, they had to, like, read it on the slide. Their parents did not approve of it. Wow. Christian kids. Yeah. Yeah. Found it too heretical and magical. Right. And so, you know, there's a spectrum. And I always consider myself on the fundy side of the spectrum. But there's more, there's people who are more funding than me, you know. Mm-hmm. So we see you. We respect you. We are not erasing your narrative. Right. Okay. But in general, C.S. Lewis is like a total darling of the evangelical world. And we've tried to bring that up a little bit with, uh, you know, this little thing you have with Dear Wormwood, mm-hmm. right? And the screw tape letters and just this sense of like, here's how I would describe the screw tape letters and the Dear Wormwood phenomenon mm-hmm. is this like couching your <laughs> snobbery in Christian intellectualism, mm-hmm. but like antagonizing it because you're writing as a demon. Right. right. So I I'm I really hate that genre. I do not like the screw tape letters at all. The Wait, whole like the original Yes. Either. No. Like it's just it's totally a part of C.S. Lewis's apologetics world and not his like fantasy medieval world. And so therefore it's kind of like the epitome of everything I don't like about Lewis. It really is passive aggressive. Oh my gosh. So snobby. Snobby, yeah. snobby, snobby. Right. And in a way, really does a disservice to like the actual ways evil works in our world. But you know, that's just me. Mm-hmm. Surrounded by the devil on all sides. Mm-hmm. And yet, the devil that Christians want to talk about is like critical race theory. It's just like, okay. Mm-hmm. It seems kind of, you know, more in vain with what Lewis was doing than, than uh, what I'm drawn to when we're talking about uh, evil in the world. Yeah. Anyways. Right. I mean, so uh, rather than a fake 
rather than asking you whether it's fake or real, uh, last summer, the National Review, which is a very conservative uh, publication, uh, wrote an article. They did say apologies to C.S. Lewis. Um, but At the very end. <laughs> if they really... If they really wanted to apologize to C.S. Lewis, they just would not have published that piece. Yes. Right. And it does. It's just that like, well, it's the passive aggressiveness. And basically the whole gist is. Wait, read the title. Read the title. um, Oh, wait. Insert the title here. Okay. And, uh, and actually, uh, um, the, (laughs) so, uh, I saw that there was audio on the site and so I like hit play Uh thinking it would be like the author, the writer reading it, but it's just a synthesized voice, um, which is great that they have that accessibility part, uh, but it is a woman <laughs> that just sounds, that's playing the role of a demon. Congratulations on your continued efforts to educate the patient on the flexibility and efficacy of the term racist. He appears, quite clearly, to appreciate that its use instantly confers upon him the status of the aggrieved, and, thus, the morally superior, in any debate. Indeed, where properly used, the term forecloses debate altogether, for his opponent will fear cancellation. A wonderful tool to advance radical or ridiculous propositions that otherwise could not survive even minimal scrutiny. A woman robot. Yep. Uh, I like it. TikTok is really into like the weird automated voice stuff right now. So. Yeah, but basically, like the gist of it is, uh, Uncle Screwtape is encouraging Wormwood to. Uh, encourage his patient to call people racist and basically like use the word racist or talking about racism yeah not just calling people racist but like talking about racism right Right. Yeah. talking about racism is a way that satan is or like you know the enemy of god is working in the world yeah and satan it, loves talking about racism like right. so much because it makes people feel really good about themselves to talk about racism that's like the point of this piece. Yes, exactly. And so um, it just reminded me so much of our Frank Peretti series, because this is like going beyond like this is kind of like passive aggressive to like if you're talking about race, right? Satan is using you. Yeah. Which I think is so proud. And it even says something in there like people that talk about race, it keeps them from actually engaging with God. Yeah. And, and then at the end, he's like, don't even get me started on social justice. And My then dear there Wormwood. is a part two. Oh. <laughs> he actually talks about social oh. justice. So, like, even if you don't read the National Review, like, the Southern Baptist Convention, like, just a little while ago, was meeting to say, like, the number one pressing issue was critical race theory, which is basically people bringing up racism as an issue in mm-hmm. theology, in the world, all this stuff. So, I'm like, yeah, it's uh, that's a mainstream thing right there that the mm-hmm. National Review is just exposing through a C.S. Lewis mimicry form setup mm-hmm. it's all connected crispin i'm like one of those conspiracy theorists like the c.s lewis <laughs> is connected it just it, it i feel like in this season i didn't quite make the connections i wanted to and i made some surprising ones i found some things i liked about it um you know we're just gonna kind of end up today by talking about the last book um the last battle and i mentioned in our last episode that um like the last battle is actually, I, after reading all the books and stuff, I would say it's the most racist of all the Narnia books. Mm-hmm. You know, so I want to start with that. Um, I was really surprised by how uh, much it was discussed in this book and in really troubling ways, and yet um, 
there's some really interesting takeaways I think we can have for our life today and some themes in the last battle that are really important. We didn't really get around to talking about it with uh, Tomato Bird because we were kind of just focusing on Tash. But Chrisman, I know you have some thoughts about the last battle and sort of like the plot and the theme and, and how it pertains to today. Right. What yeah. do you want to say? Well, and I think what's like, what's really interesting is I re- I did recently reread it. And when I read it as a teenager, I was like, this has, this is like C.S. Lewis's version of Left Behind. This has the keys to understand like what's going to happen next. Right. Probably a lot of people have had that experience. But reading it today, I was like, oh my gosh, this puts into words so much of like what I've been feeling in the last four years. Um, So basically, one of the things that comes up is that Aslan comes back. It's not actually Aslan. It's this uh, this ape who has convinced his donkey friend to wear a lion uh, costume and pretend to be Aslan. Um, And the ape is doing all these things uh, like um, enslaving people, cutting down lumber, um, doing all these things that are like good for business. Uh, right. He's a good capitalist. Um, and people are like, this doesn't really seem like Aslan, but in the stories, it's always said he's not a tame lion. And that to me really struck this parallel between, um, the, like the neo-Calvinist like kind of movement and Trump. And I'll break that down. So like what it really reminded me of is that like a lot of people said like, yeah, God is using Trump and it doesn't make sense, but that's because God doesn't make sense. Um, Whatever God does is good. And that would be sort of that like Calvinistic idea. So like we talked before, right? If if a bridge collapses and people die, that is good because God did it. Right. And John Piper said that publicly, one of the foremost Reformed theologians in the U.S. And he just stated that, bold as brass. Right, exactly. And so in that realm, then anything that you can claim that God is doing something and it has to be good, even if it seems like it's bad. And so... um so that's based, I mean, that's so many charismatic people have said we've had visions. God wants Trump, right? And it's for God's glory, which means uh, putting the church first and protecting the church so that God will be glorified, right? Which is not the same as like the flourishing of all people. And what this looks like in Narnia is people are like, yeah, this feels kind of weird. But the old stories have always said he's not a tame lion. We can't predict Aslan. So I guess we just need to go along with it. And it just really felt so familiar. And I think that this idea of like, we don't understand God. We can't understand what God is doing. We, we mix up love and right. Like God is loving, but he's also just like, just all these things I think really made it like pave the way for Trump. I think in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a book about why people follow antichrists. Yeah, exactly. And the psychology behind that. And you're saying it's the parallels to the ways current theologians justify all sorts of terrible things mm-hmm. and uh, really confuse people. And I think it's it's okay for us to say, like, we have grown up in Christianity and we've experienced so much of this disconnect. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that it really – like, we need – so what Jewel and uh, – the king Tyrion. There we go. <laughs> what Jewel and the King Tyrion 
say basically is like we it would be worse to find out that God is or sorry it would be worse to find out that Aslan is um not what he we thought he was all this time right we we've been longing for Aslan that's going to be bring justice and hope and healing and what if that's not the Aslan that we've been longing for all this time it would be better to die mm-hmm and I think that uh, it really speaks to, like, we need, as a theology, we need a base work of, like, what is good and what is bad. Because otherwise you just end up baptizing whatever it is and saying, well, God's behind this, so it's good. And we really need, like, a better ethic to understand, like, what is good and what is bad. And I think in the evangelical church, it's been there's been some level of kind of uh, gaslighting that happens Right. Where things that are bad are called good, which then makes it hard for us to like get our bearing in the world to tell what is of God and what is of Antichrist. Yeah. I mean, even you just saying that, I'm like, I think you're right on, but I feel pretty despondent. Like, how do you develop? I mean, I personally am trying to develop an ethic of what is good and what is bad. I no longer look to the evangelical white church in any way, shape or form to help me develop that ethic. I'm just going to be honest. Right. Yeah. Well, and it, and I think like we need to turn to other, uh, other theologians mm-hmm. and I would say even scholars like to understand, for example, what Torah is about. Yeah. Historians, scholars. Yeah. 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 Right. Cause Torah shows us, I'm thinking of Wilda Gaffney's book, mm-hmm. uh, where she talks about like, Torah is about how do we create a safe, flourishing society for everyone. Yeah. Right. Um, how it's not about like how do we like, I mean, it is about glorifying God, but it's not really about God. It's about the people because God is a parent, right? God does love us and God wants to create a safe, uh, healthy society. Um, but we get it twisted around where it's like, well, we need to keep the law to keep God happy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's where things get really problematic. The other thing I want to say is the uh, Lewis really doesn't give the dwarves a break, and I think he should. Oh, you're bringing up the dwarves. Yeah, I think of them as anarchists. You got to you got to explain it for Kay. people who yeah, haven't yeah, read right. the book. So thank you. Uh, basically, um, because Aslan has been terrible. Right. So, like, the dwarves are, like, the only people who reject the false Aslan out of hand. Right. They're just, like, this is, basically, they're, like, this is bullshit. And they're, like, we're going to do our own thing. We're no longer, like, loyal Narnians to Aslan. We're not going and being slaves to the Calarines. Like, we're not doing any of it. Like, dwarves are for the dwarves. The dwarves are for the dwarves. Okay. There we go. Yeah. And so, but then uh, King Tyrion and Jewel go and tell them, like, no, this isn't the real Aslan. He's a fake. He's a fake. Like, join us and help Aslan. And they're like, we're done with Aslan. Like, we are, we don't want a king. We don't want, which is why I think of them as anarchists. It makes me think of Doomtree, because it's like, no kings, no gods, no rulers, you know, like, which is the dwarves, right? Yeah. And so they're makes, anarchist rapper dwarves? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> and it makes sense, though, right? Like, and what I think it, like, King Tyrion, it actually says, like, oh, what Jewel and King Tyrion didn't see is that the impact of a fake Aslan mm. would make it hard to believe in a real Aslan. Mm. And I'm like, that is such a good point. Thank you, Lewis. That, like, basically, I would say, like, centuries of oppressive governments claiming God, of course people are going to have a hard time believing in any sort of God. And I think that's okay, which is literally what you said in our last episode. Uh-huh. Oh. Right? You're like, if you're just done, it makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah. Right? 
but then Lewis paints them as like villains that, you know, they won't They submit. don't actually get into Aslan's country. Right, because they're not willing to give Aslan a second chance or whatever. And I'm They're like, locked in like a prison of blindness that they mm-hmm. can't escape from. Right, yeah. It's really sad. Yeah, it is sad, but I'm like, I feel like I feel like the best thing that Lewis could have done, fan fiction. Yeah. Aslan needed to go to the dwarves and be like, this is so screwed up. Yeah. And like healed that relationship in some way. Okay, you already brought up Dr. Wilda Gaffney. She would say you're just using your sanctified imagination, right? <laughs> to to add on to that story. And I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like you read that book and you were like, the real Aslan should have come to the dwarves and said, you're right. You're right to be so angry and so mistrustful. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Instead, Lewis blames them, says it's their own stubbornness, mm-hmm. and they basically don't get to go have fun in Aslan's country. Right, yeah. It's kind of like, you've talked about this before, this idea that, no, we actually do believe in a really good God, just people choose to lock themselves away from his goodness. It's like, well, who would choose that? Why do they choose that? There's trauma. Right. Like you're saying there's trauma. Mm-hmm. Trauma right. causes people to actually self-sabotage themselves mm-hmm. all the time right. in life. Yeah. And like, why would a loving God punish people for that right. instead of like joining them in the mm-hmm. in their experience of trauma? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about in Padre Gotuma's book, who I'm interviewing him next season. Oh my gosh. Uh, Way to just name drop <laughs> our just, favorite poet, priest, theologian. Just trying to, he's not a priest, but... I Say he is, but he's Catholic. You're just like everybody who's Catholic is a priest. But here's the deal: he's a priest in my heart. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry for saying that aloud, Patrick. (laughs) But he he talks in uh, in his book in the shelter about like how the disciples after Jesus' death they lock themselves in this dark room. And then Jesus Mm. comes in and says, like, hello, peace be with you. Oh, my gosh. That gave me chills. I know. And I'm like, I think that's what the real Aslan would have done. It would have been, like, show up in in their camp. Where they've locked themselves in a dark room. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love it. You're into the dwarves. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great thing. So any other things you want to kind of wrap up this this season? I feel like I've said so many times. I'm drawn to C.S. Lewis, his imagination, Mm -hmm. fantasy, longing for joy. I reject, you know, his white supremacist, British imperialistic nationalism. And Mm -hmm. I'm not giving him a pass for it. Mm -hmm. Because there were people alive during his time who were, you know, anti all those things and he could have listened to them but he chose not to right yeah boom i think that thinking about c.s lewis and the series is the same way that i feel about the bible whoa Uh, (laughs) let me explain here we go (laughs) is that like something that's so familiar can be so boring but when you hear from people from a lot of different backgrounds and even like different religious backgrounds on this topic it really helps you engage it in a different way. And so that's where I'm like, I could go the rest of my life without reading another book by like a white evangelical theologian. I probably will. Wait, um, you probably will go the rest of your life without reading one? Maybe. <laughs> let's see. Oh, let's do a bet. Okay. You can't escape it, my bud. You and your research, you're going to just... That's true. Uh, We've been talking about how Danielle, when she's writing her book, she gets all these really great like scholar works. And I'm on the lookout for like the the like I'm trying to understand the psychological 
setting of evangelicalism, which means reading some really crappy books. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but, you know, reading books by people that have a totally different perspective than me on the Bible uh, does really help me engage mm-hmm. it in a different way. And I felt the same way with Lewis, like hearing from people that are Muslim and hearing feminists and hear, you know, like lots of scholars, academics. Yeah. Right. It's great. really different than like what, you know, it's I not a waste with. of time. No, not at all. And it makes it less boring. I will say, cause we had, to, we did watch some Narnia stuff to prep for this season. And now like our five-year-old's asking to watch Chronicles of Narnia again, which is interesting. Uh-huh. He's into it. So yeah. right. who knows? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about like, if we're talking about general media, like, you know, it's all right. Yeah. Like our kids watch a lot of stupid stuff, so, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Although, I I mean, I do have to, we, we're going to have to have some conversations, because remember when they were like, the Christians are these people fighting. Oh, I know. the non-Christians are, yeah. yeah, so. Yeah, but it's been a really great season. We're so grateful to all the guests, and l- last episode, I th- I think it wasn't until Tomato Bird that I was like, oh, people have thought about Narnia a lot, which is a terrible thing to say. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> because all of our guests. But I think- this whole time I've been shaking in my figurative boots. Like, we're just so stupid compared to everybody I've interviewed, you know. Right, yeah. But, hey, we're stand-ins for the audience. Um, I will say that I have so much thoughts about The Last Battle and everything going on that I actually um, – was like, I don't really feel like talking about it, just ad lib. So I, I wrote an essay, which we're going to put at the end of this podcast. That's mm-hmm. sort of like me just trying to delve into a little bit. I mean, we started this podcast because of evangelicals, white evangelicals being involved in politics. And, and that's where I go. And you already mentioned Trump and some of the parallels. So so just stay tuned um, uh, for the end of this podcast for, for me reading my essay on the last battle in evangelicals and Trump. But, um, you know, we just are so grateful for everybody who's been along the way. We're so grateful for all our guests and what an awesome season this is. And really quick, Crispin, I need you to tell the people what's coming next for the prophetic imagination station. (laughs) I feel like we're taking a hard left or right or something. We're we're, We're not taking a hard right. (laughs) We are going to be talking about Christian hardcore. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, but to understand, using it as an entry point to understand the emotional, psychological, and political, uh, under impact of growing up evangelical. So not really about hardcore. Right. Basically like these hardcore bands, they were like 16 year olds, 17 year olds, 20 year olds that most of them grew up in the church. And then they're like screaming these lyrics and nobody was like the, the, well, we'll talk about this later. Um, Basically, they're screaming these lyrics and nobody really censored anything. Um, and so it gives us a lot of insight into like what is going on in in the kind of heart of evangelicalism. Yeah. As we talk a lot about cognitive dissonance of white evangelicals, you have really zeroed in like Christian hardcore has some things to teach us about what was going on inside of all of our mixed up little feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, looking at like the hardcore, maybe a little pop punk scene of the 90s, mm-hmm. early 2000s, the tooth and nail scene. Um, so obviously, if you grew up with that stuff, you're going to love this. If you didn't, you're still going to love it because it's a peek into, you know, what you call 
you know, what's what's in evangelicalism's basement, right? right. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think it's going to be fascinating. You're interviewing some amazing people. Stay tuned. If you're really, if you're a white guy who really loves Christian hardcore, please don't send us mean emails. Like <laughs> that is already happening. That's already happening. This is not what this is about. You don't understand us. Just calm the heck down and stop spending so much time writing these really long emails. Yeah. Um, but stay tuned for that. And yeah, thanks to our patrons. You can support us. Uh, you know, where you get it. And now, yeah. do you have anything else to say? Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're going to be launching that in March. Uh, we're going to take February off to get all those interviews done. Um, and you, can, you can still find us on Patreon. We'll be doing mm-hmm. Patreon-only episodes yes, exactly. you know, for January, February. Um, yeah. But here's, uh, so here's the essay I wrote on The Last Battle. The Last Battle was written in 1950s England, but I read it in 1990s rural America, where my only reference for reality was the white, non-denominational evangelicalism that I grew up in. The way that I read this story about the end of the world was fully informed by my own religious upbringing. I read it when the Left Behind series was beginning to hit bestseller lists, bringing to life a theology in which true Christians were raptured to heaven— just as the earth began to descend into chaos and intense suffering from supernatural beings. I read The Last Battle with bated breath, hoping it might hold the keys to understanding what exactly might happen at the end of the world. I finished this children's novel on the lookout for a leader who would be on the war path to extinguish Christianity, because this was the narrative I was told. The Antichrist, hidden in plain sight, a part of the global one-world-order conspiracy ushered in by the liberals. This was my framework when I read Lewis's last book in his Chronicles of Narnia series. The book The Last Battle follows what happens when a clever monkey named Shift and his not-so-clever donkey friend Puzzle decide to impersonate the great lion Aslan, king above all high kings, who has not been seen in Narnia for centuries. Shift the ape becomes the mouthpiece for Aslan, played by the sweet Puzzle who is wearing the dead skin of a lion around his shoulders. Puzzle is kept in a stable and only comes out so the Narnians who have heard rumors of Aslan returning can get a glimpse of him. Shift tells the creatures what Aslan orders, and they do it with fear and trembling. The dread of these scenes is palpable. From the dead lion's skin hanging on the donkey, to the dark and musty stable, to the rising dread of the creatures of Narnia who long to meet this Aslan they have heard so much about, only to find out that he is angry and cruel and distant with them. Everyone, from the smallest of Narnian talking beasts to the king of Narnia himself, Tyrion, experiences a crisis of faith. This is the Aslan they have heard about and tried to follow all their lives? This Aslan has been selling Narnians as slaves to the Calamarines and cutting down the majestic Narnian forest to sell lumber to the neighboring nations. Everyone seems confused by the decrees of Aslan, but they keep repeating a phrase that has been said by Narnians for generation after generation. He's not a tame lion. The Narnians repeat this phrase to quell their own anxieties about Aslan's unsettling inconsistencies. He's not a tame lion, they tell themselves sadly as they watch their world crumble around them, 
miserably obedient even as their neighbors and creation itself is desecrated in order to procure wealth for the leaders. He's not a tame lion, they say, even as the false Aslan destroys everything they hold dear. What they are saying is true, but it has been twisted beyond understanding by one smart ape who understands how a distant god and a faithful following can be twisted into building an unholy empire. In recent months, my Facebook feed has been full of posts from evangelical Christians who believe that Trump was chosen by God to be president, not just once, but twice. There are paintings of Trump standing alone with his hands folded in prayer while nearby Democrats stand on the U.S. flag. I have seen allusions to Daniel in the lion's den, where Daniel is waiting to be vindicated, just as Trump will soon be, all these Christians suppose. These are posts from distant family members, friends, former Sunday school teachers, These are posts from the people who brought me up in my Christian faith. Yet many actions of this particular chosen one don't quite make sense. Trump champions policies that fail to support those that Jesus prioritized, the poor, the sick, prisoners, and the oppressed. Yet like the Narnians who remind themselves, Aslan's not a tame lion, evangelicals have their mantras. Most obvious is support of Trump as the protector of the unborn. But there's also claims that he is the only one standing between them and communism, or that he is a bastion for the protection of the religious liberty for Christian churches and institutions. He tells the truth, people say. He tells it like it is. He's a strong man who will defend us from a world we feel increasingly at odds with. In these phrases, I hear the echoes of the Narnians in the last battle. Whatever else you can say about him is not a tame lion. That phrase, he's not a tame lion, was originally said in the first book in the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Both Mr. Beaver and Mr. Tumnus say a variation on this phrase, pointing out to their British visitors that while Aslan isn't safe, he is good. In the last battle, hundreds of years removed from the stories of Aslan, Lewis shows how such statements can be exploited when removed from relationship with the divine. He isn't safe, but he's good. He's not a tame lion, you know. These phrases opened up the Narnians to embracing and obeying all sorts of inconsistencies and cruelties in the name of their God. I grew up in a religion that attributed all sorts of evil to a loving God. In my Christian history textbooks, in churches and theology courses, I've learned that God predestined the U.S. to be discovered by white European Protestants that Africans needed to be enslaved in order to save their souls and to ensure the U.S. was a prosperous country, that God uses unsavory characters like Trump to accomplish his goodwill to make America great again. After all, as mere humans, we can't decide how God works or what is ultimately good. 
All that matters is that we understand it is God sanctioning the genocide of indigenous peoples, of chattel slavery and a racialized hierarchy, and a rising swell of white nationalist nativism currently in the U.S. Over the past two millennia, so much oppression and harm has been perpetuated in Jesus' name and continues to today, which is the very definition of antichrist behavior. And perhaps today, more than ever, we need stories that point out how primed so many of us are to accept a cruel leader just because of how little we understand the nature of God. In the last battle, Lewis's Antichrist figure didn't persecute followers of Aslan. He exploited them. And even worse, he exploited their neighbors in the very earth they stood on in the name of progress, good business sense, and in the very name of Aslan. He wasn't a world leader who sought to create a new religion. He cleverly used the old religion for violence and greed, which is an ancient, ancient story. When I was a child, I was scared of the end times. I was scared of a new day dawning full of suffering for me and my people. That's what I thought the last battle was about when I was a child. But now, going back and reading it, I see how the last battle is a story of our past and present with a few glimpses of hope for our future. One of these glimpses is the idea that when antichrists are in charge, we need people to be bold in their heretical faith. Several characters in the last battle, including King Tyrion and his best friend, a unicorn named Jewel, can't believe their ears when they hear these stories of Aslan ripping up forests and selling talking beasts into slavery. They don't doubt that they have heard in all the old stories that he is not a tame lion, yet they refuse to believe the worst about Aslan. Would it not be better to be dead, Tyrion says, than to have this terrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? He would rather die than find out Aslan is not actually good. It would be as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun, he says. Jewel the unicorn agrees, saying it would be as if you drank water and it was dry. They have faith to disbelieve the narrative that everyone else has been sold because they stubbornly cling to the idea of the goodness of Aslan, not just for them, but for everyone. In a world that justifies the harm of others as a necessary step in the will of God, it takes faith to believe that God is actually good news for the poor, the sick, the sad, and the oppressed. It takes faith to believe that God cares not just about the religious freedom of the Christian church, but for everyone in society, including those outside our borders. It takes faith to believe that God would not choose a man who only looks out, supposedly for the good of the church, but that God instead desires the flourishing of all people. C.S. Lewis did not have a scared and rather isolated young woman in mind when he wrote The Last Battle. He did not have in his mind the apocalyptic language of evangelical bestsellers like the late Great Planet Earth or the Left Behind series. 
The last battle, in fact, was not really about the end times at all. Instead, it was a creative way of playing with how religion can be twisted to oppress others. And it was a call to resist the temptation to cling to echoes of God's character, which no longer serve us or our neighbors. Today, as I write this, Trump has slinked back to his mansion in Margot Law, his lion skin slipping off his shoulders as we speak. But tomorrow there will be someone else claiming to know the ways of God, claiming that the suffering they inflict on others is a sign of the untamable nature of the divine. Tomorrow there will be another Antichrist reminding us that the ways of a God of power are never tame, never safe, and ultimately never, ever good. May we have eyes to see. May we be able to learn from the unveiling, the apocalypse happening in front of us right now. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.